I don't think you know everything you need to know about the persona <coughs> of love. I think we're barely scratching the surface, but you may feel that way. Do people want to talk about this poem or not? The when you're old? Um, here's a copy. Anyone else need it? Gila, do you need it? Um, some of you, I've responded to your um, journal entries already. I figure they're not the same thing as papers, so I'm not getting them all back simultaneously, but responding um, as I get to them. Um, to me, they seem like they're, they were actually good for you, um, even if you don't think so. No one, no, one, no one seemed to say, oh, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for making us do that last class. But it did seem to me like um, they were really interesting to read and that you are, um, uh, I don't know, condensing and um, um, integrating uh, stuff from the class. So maybe not, but to me it seemed good. Um, OK, anyone else need it? Do we want to talk about it for a little while or not? You know what a little while here means, right? I mean, you know what you're getting into if we say a little while. So, yes or no? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, what we just what we ended class with last time, I think it's also in that case worth looking at when the lamp is shattered, which is next to it. In fact, let's. I'm just going to read through when the lamp is shattered, which is um, a really subtle poem, but they're just uh, it'll provide a good context for Yeats. Um, Yeats felt about Shelley the way um, Auden felt about Yeats, only probably more so. That is to say, um, Yeats was obsessed with Shelley. Um, and in a lot of ways, Yeats learned, a lot of ways, not every way, but in a lot of ways, Yeats learned what a poem could be from reading Shelley. Um, so When the Lamp is Shattered, which is on the same sheet as the um, this one, yeah, you can... Yeah, so pass that to Rachel. Um, is a late lyric of Shelley's. Um, and like a lot of his late lyrics, as you can see, they, it was published posthumously. He died in 1822 at the age of 29. Um, and like a lot of his late, late lyrics, it's a poem about um, love and sadness. And... Um, the shattered lamp is something like the lamp of love um, or even life itself. For, <coughs> Shelley, for Shelley, love and life um, are often coordinated with each other or often what happens is life remains when love is gone. Um, so when the lamp is shattered, the light in the dust lies dead. I'll just make a couple of remarks as we go through it. Um, the light in the dust lies dead. It's, it's a beautiful image. And what you would think of is something like it's an oil lamp, it being 1821 when he writes this. It's an oil lamp. The lamp is shattered. Um, the oil is still burning, but only briefly because it falls into the dust. Um, so it's a beautiful image. Um, you can imagine a beautiful image of the oil burning and burning out when the lamp shatters and the oil is now in the dust. Um, but it's also the dust that we are. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Um, so when the lamp is shattered, when the lamp of human life is shattered, the light that once made us into living beings now lies dead. The light in the, in the dust lies dead is... Um, 
a sort of metaphor for the death of love using another metaphor for death itself, which is we are dust infused with light, but eventually that light will lie dead. When the cloud is scattered, the rainbow's glory is shed. When the lute is broken, sweet tones are remembered not. When the lips have spoken, loved accents are soon forgot. Um, that is, when they're not speaking anymore, when, the, when their speaking is in the past, when they are done speaking. Loved accents are soon forgot. As music and splendor survive not, the lamp and the lute, um, the lamp and the lute we've just talked about. In the same way, the heart's echoes render no song when the spirit is mute. So there are no echoes left when the spirit itself is mute. Um, when the spirit sings, there are echoes. When the spirit stops singing, the echoes die away. No song but sad dirges like the wind through a ruined cell, or the mournful surges that ring the dead seaman's knell. So the surges of water when the seaman is drowned. And then what this is all about. When hearts have once mingled, that is again, it's in the past tense, have once mingled. When hearts have once mingled, love first leaves the well-built nest. So there we have love being personified. I think this is one of the things that Yeats is thinking about. When hearts have once mingled, love first leaves the well-built nest. Or maybe personified <coughs> is the wrong word. Maybe we, what we want to say is um, ornithified. Why are you smiling? What would that mean? Yes, made into a bird. Love made into a bird not into a person. Love as something that flies away. When hearts have once mingled, love first leaves the well-built nest. The weak one is singled to endure what it once possessed. So who would the weak one be when love leaves the well-built nest? Yeah. The one who still hangs on to it? Yeah, the one who still feels love when abandoned by the other one. So love leaves the nest, and what's left in the nest is the weak one, who now must endure what it once possessed. What would that mean? What is that thing that it now must endure that it once possessed? The other heart. The other heart, but how's it enduring the other heart if the heart is left? It's enduring its absence. Okay, enduring its absence. It's enduring its, uh, its own love for, for yeah. that heart, which was once good, but now isn't. Okay, good. So it's enduring the love it feels, um, which it was once its possession, and now is its torture, that something strange has flipped. Love leaves, and I like the way both of you put it, which is that love leaves, and yet somehow it also stays. It stays as its absence is what um, you came to, Justy. It stays as the feeling that it once was happy about but now isn't. Um, um, Auden has a famous couplet, um, if equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Um, that's a prayer that Auden recites. If there isn't equal love between people, and of course there never is, 
um, he decides he would rather be more loving than beloved, to quote actually a line from Antony and Cleopatra. Um, it's a hard question. Do you want to be more loving or more beloved? Do you want to be the more loving one or not? Auden, possibly through Yeats, ultimately from, possibly ultimately from Shelley, um, is saying, given the choice, I would rather be the more loving one than the one who is more loved. But that's a really hard choice. Um, it's a it's a question worth thinking about what, which you would rather be. But for Auden, if equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Here it's when hearts have once mingled, love first leaves the well-built nest. The weak one is single to endure what it once possessed. Oh, love! So here's this address to a personified or ornithified love. Oh, love who bewailest <coughs> frailty of all things here, why choose you the frailest for your cradle, your home, and your beer? So cradle because, why cradle? Because it was a young love. You, right, and then home, and then why beer? What's a beer? Yeah, so it's the death of love. So why do you choose? Love bewails the frailty of all things on earth. Um, an interesting assertion that love bewails that. Um, if that's so, why does it go to this frail place? And why does it choose the frailest? Who would the frailest be? Of the two of them. Of the couple. The weak one. The weak one. Yeah, precisely. It's almost a synonym for weak, frail. Um, so why, if you're um, already bewailing how everything is frail among human beings, how love doesn't last, how it's the nature of human beings not to stay in love with each other, or for a love between people not to last, why then do you go to human beings to begin with? Why is it the nature of love to bewail? And why, when you go to human beings, is it the weak one who continues to feel love? Why choose you the frailest for your cradle, your home, and your beer? And then he goes on, its passions will rock thee. So the frailest person is now the nest of love. The well-built nest is now the frail nest. You should think of the nest as frail in winter. And that's the person who feels love. And now love is going to suffer from what the person feels. Its passions will rock thee as the storms rock the ravens on high. Bright reason will mock thee like the sun from a wintry sky from thy nest every rafter will rot, and thine eagle home leave thee naked to laughter <coughs> when leaves fall and cold winds come. So again, just the paradoxical thing to notice here, I think it's a deep and powerful paradox, is that love leaves 
and when love leaves, what gets left behind is love. And the love that gets left behind is some personification of extreme unhappiness, extreme exposure to the storms. Every rafter will rot from your eagle home, from thy nest. <clears throat> from, thy, from thy nest every rafter will rot, and thine eagle home leave thee naked to laughter when leaves fall and cold winds come. So that seems a kind of perennial image of the departure of love, that when love leaves, what's left behind is love. But the love that leaves, that's, that's a pretty simple metaphor. <coughs> love used to be here, and then love left, and that was all very sad. But the metaphor becomes really strange and interesting when the departure of love becomes the unhappiness or the misery of love. It's almost as though that's the in that, that's that's why love gets personified. The person you love no longer loves you. And yet somehow the absence of that person remains for you in the idea that the friendship and companionship they once offered to you, now only the unhappiness of your own love offers you that friendship and that companionship. And the unhappiness of your own love becomes personified as love itself. Now this is not a description. I mean, I think here's another crucial thing to understand here. This is not a description of a human psychological state. That is, any of you who have been on the receiving end of an unhappy breakup, which is to say any human being, um, you don't go around saying, well, at least I'm hanging out with love right now. Um, or you don't talk to love and you don't say to love um, as love eats breakfast with you and, and mourns with you and so on. You don't say to love, um, look what's happened to us. Um, you're just alone. But on some level, and I think this is what Bishop is thinking about, on some level, the act of personifying love is the same thing as the act of writing a poem. That is, what can live with you if you're a poet is the poem that you're writing about your own loss. And that poem about your own loss is like every fiction that human beings create, a fiction about a person. All fiction is about persons. And since the beloved is gone completely and forever, since describing the beloved, oh, you have no idea how much I lost. You know, yeah, you've lost somebody, but no one is special as the person I've lost. Um, that just sounds silly, because that's a way of trying to um, turn the loss and contain it within some description of a particular person, whereas the loss feels universal when you lose love. It feels like you've lost everything. So, but because it's a poem, it's a fiction. It's a fiction not that you didn't really lose someone, 
but it's a fiction because you're putting into a literary world something that um, was once part of the real world, but the literary world is different. It's one reason you go to the literary world, because it gets you out of the real world, at least for a while. Maybe to escape, or maybe to think more deeply and more intensely, but it's not the real world, the world of a poem. So, if that's so, then what we could say is it's a fiction, and the, f the fictional figure in that poem is going to be the absence of the person you love, and the absence of the person that you love gets strangely represented as love. And it's not that love simply stands for your feelings, because love is also what abandoned you, whereas your feelings didn't abandon you. So in the fictional world of the poem, love becomes the thing that is present because it is absent, that becomes intensely more present because its absence is so vivid and so powerful. So love becomes simultaneously the feeling that you have and the object of that feeling. Not the other person, but the absence of the other person. Because absence means absent from you. So it's the feeling that you have. But the one who is absent is the other person. So it's not you, but it's the object of the feeling, the person that you love. So that's why in Shelley, love both leaves the well-built nest and is rocked and mocked in that very nest after it leaves. And that Shelley is suggesting, or Shelley is not suggesting, Shelley is showing, that's why people go to poetry, to writing poetry when they're miserable, that poetry is populating a fictional world with absence. Not populating a fictional world with fictional presence, but populating a fictional world with absence. You can't do that in the real world, but you can do that in a poem. So if you find, as I do, if you find When the Lamp is Shattered powerful, especially those last two stanzas, its passions will rock thee as the storms rock the ravens on high. Bright reason will mock thee like the sun from a wintry sky. From thy nest every rafter will rot, and thine eagle home leave thee naked to laughter when leaves fall and cold winds come. If that seems powerful, um, I think the reason it's powerful is because it gets very deeply into that strange undoing of the difference between presence and absence in desperately sad poetry. So I think you can see that in Yeats. These will be just our very few minutes on Yeats. Um, here's the situation. Yeats, you're checking. Yeats. <laughs> 
Um, Yeats is addressing the poem. I already mentioned that it was a trans, not really a translation, um, but an adaptation um, of a poem by Ronsard. Um, Yeats is um, writing the poem to a you um, and says to her, but when does he say it? That one day she will take this book down and read this poem. So is he imagining that that will be the first time she reads it? Or another time that she reads it? How would it be different if, if, it were, if the poem went something like, now that you're old and weary? Say the poem were, were titled something like, to my beloved to be read in 30 years or to be opened in 30 years. And then the poem went, now that you are old and gray and full of sleep and nodding by the fire, take down this book. Would that make it different or not? You look like you want to say something, Isabel. Yeah, yeah. Did you know it before? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I think what I, what drew me in personally is just like, it, there's just something bigger about it. And when you take a word like now, it makes a poem I feel so much smaller, which can be okay, but in this case, I don't feel. No, I agree, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, ben? <clears throat> uh, this kind of struck me the first time I read it as something that someone who is dying would write to somebody. Uh huh. Something, because especially when you get to the end, it says, how love fled. Yeah. It seems like there's no indication that the poet is present in the scene, uh -huh. in the scene that he's describing. It seems like something that he would write to somebody who, to the love of his life, when, yeah. he's, when he's about to die. Yeah. That's um, what yeah, so I would say, I would extend that to say, yes, I mean, I, I think it sounds like you're disagreeing with Rachel, but I would say you're actually not. No, no. Um, not. And that it's something like um, everybody, depending on, for, 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 um, the overwhelming majority of values for the word about, everybody is about to die. Um, so it's, uh, he gets that feel into it without um, it being somehow illegitimate if it turns out that he lives another 30 years. 
um, it's still not illegitimate for him to get the feeling of about to dineness into it. Um, Jesse, your hand is up. Yeah, um, I I agree with with Ben about the sort of etern- eternalness of the you know kind of looking into the precipice feeling on Yates's part, but on the part of his subject. Um, I agree with Rachel that the, the, the now of it would, would alter it unless, of course, he was writing it to the kind of, unless his subject is the kind of person he knew was going to, like, go look at it no matter what, in which case I sort of read it a little differently, which is that, you know, this isn't a, you know, this isn't like a, a time capsule of their love, but this, you know, more, more of a... a a living anniversary, because this is the kind of person that he knows is, you know, kind of going to not be able to resist and take it off the shelf, in which case it, it, it becomes very different in my eyes. Okay, that's that's nicely put. Um, do you think that she loves him back? Who do you think the more loving one is here? Yeah. I think he is. Why? He notes, um, if you look at the second stanza, uh-huh. he says he loved the pilgrim soul in, in her it's like not really very flattering to say of someone, I don't think. So, so she is now reflecting upon like a love that they may have had in the past. He's probably gone at this point, and um, should should realize he's saying in this poem that that uh, they had they had shared something, and she may not have realized it at the time. Um, <coughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, Rachel. I think also <clears throat> I agree that. Do people know? Do people know just sort of idiomatically what um, "hide your face" means in a context like this? It means weep. That is, you hide your face in weeping. Um, and it, uh, or to say it means weep is a little bit strong, but it's a gesture associated with weeping. It's a it's a kind of gesture that reads as um, attempting to um, not expose how miserable and upset you are. Um, so that when love hid his face amid a crowd of stars, um, it's that um, fled from a situation that um, all he could do was was lament and mourn. And um, part of, again, part of the um, behavior of lamentation you know, think of, just think of what it means to say that someone is full of lamentation or that someone is lamenting, and the kind of corona of behavior that you'll picture is not only that they're saying, "Oh, never was grief like mine," um, to quote the biblical book of Lamentations. Um, that not only will they say that, but if you just picture what it means for them to lament, it's that they'll turn away from you, 
and that they'll hide and that they'll turn towards um, darkness or towards the wall or something like that because it's part of the gesture of lamentation um, not to be communicating it to others um, so much as to withdraw from others where the last um, uh, residue of awareness of others is your awareness that um, you don't even want their comfort. You don't want to interact with them. Um, and But you do want to interact with them enough that you turn away from them. That is, you're sufficiently aware of others that you want to turn away from them. That's the residue of your awareness of them. So to, hid, to, to hide your face doesn't always mean that you're lamenting, but in a situation where lamentation or sadness is um, uh, the dominant mood or emotion, that's going to be um, a, a periphrasis for weeping, um, that love went and wept alone on the mountainsides um, and um, on the mountains overhead. Um, so again, yeah, that love bring it back to Shelley a little bit. So when you are old and gray and full of sleep, he says to her, and nodding by the fire, take down this book, which is say something like, remember this poem, which you're now reading that you are young and dark and full of brightness. Remember this poem later. Read it now, but remember it later. When you're old and gray and full of sleep, and nodding by the fire. Take down this book and slowly read and dream of the soft look your eyes had once and of their shadows deep. The soft look that I record in the poem. People probably don't think about, oh, the soft look my eyes now have. Um, the soft look your eyes had once, how would she dream of that? In a way that's again psychologically implausible. Um, we could maybe even say of poems that poems are, good poems are really good at um, giving us um, an exposition of moods that are psychologically implausible, that only exist in poetic worlds, and yet are no less powerful for that. So the idea that an old person is going to dream about the look her eyes had once, the soft look her eyes had once, that doesn't really make sense in the real world, I don't think. I mean, there are old people who are vain and who say, oh, I'm old now, but I used to be so beautiful. Um, there are people who are vain in that sense. Um, but they don't dream of the soft look their eyes had once, or if they do, that's, that just is um, bespeaks a, an intensity of narcissistic self-regard that is contrary to the mood that Yeats is interested in here. So in a sense, if you say, dream of the soft look your eyes had once, what he's actually saying is, that's what I'm dreaming of. Even as I see you, I get dreamy thinking of the soft, or even as I write this poem, because I'm not seeing you as I write it. I am dreaming of the soft look your eyes have. And now I would like you to see yourself through my eyes when you are old and gray. Then remember how I saw you. And so he's skipping that part, but it's dream of the person 
so enraptured by the soft look your eyes had once. Or think of me as the person in love with this woman whose eyes had that soft look. Do you see the difference there? That it has to be his description of her and not his feeling that she'll actually really dream of this. Rather, what she'll dream of is how he felt this about her, how he loved her, and of their shadows deep. And dream of how many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty with love false or true, which is to say love false or true. The word false there basically says, yeah, true love, false love, they're both kind of standard versions of love. Um, true love is, yes, true love. But love, false or true, means that those are equally valid adjectives to apply to love. It's like, um, um, I don't know, mango golden or green. Um, two kinds of mangoes, more or less equal. Love, false or true, two kinds of love, more or less equal. Um, not with true love some and false love most, but eh, the difference between them is meh. Um, because even true love, the true love that the many have of her, is not the love he's talking about. True love is easy. Yatesian love, that's, some, that's a whole nother kettle of mangoes. So how many loved your moments of glad grace and loved your beauty? with love false or true. The fact that what they loved was her beauty also shows that, yeah, true love for what? For her beauty. Almost like saying, and loved your money with love false or true. True love of money is just nevertheless not that great. Um, but one man loved the pilgrim soul in you. That would be him. But yeah. I think you suggested earlier pilgrim soul had kind of a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. I think it just means like, not just loving that transient beauty, but loving something inside the person and loving the part of them that transforms as they get older. Yeah, and, and also loving the part of them. I think you weren't saying it was negative, but maybe not what you want to hear from a right. potential... Um, right. but that he loves even this sort of negative thing. Yeah. Yeah, despite this sort of negative thing in everyone, he still loves her. But who wants to be... I mean, who wants to be loved for the pilgrim soul in them? Raise your hands if that's what you want. If you don't have a pilgrim soul. Well, it's, you know, in a way, one of the things that's great about Yeats is that he's an extreme version all his life. And this is, this is great. This is not to diss him. Um, but he's, all his life, he's an extreme version of a <coughs> kind of adolescent passionateness about love, which is essentially... Um, I see that you're much deeper than you have any idea about. You should love me because I see how deep you are. I am writing poems about your depth. Where the other person is basically saying, um, you know, I'm a real person living a real life. And your idea that what I actually am is this soulful, deep person, and I don't even know it, but you do, and that's why I should love you, um, that's kind of um, corny. Um, and corny is good in poetry, um, but, but the corny version of that is every, um, not every, but many adolescent poems um, are poems about, you should love me because I know that you are deeper than you know you are. 
Um, and I th- was that sort of what you were suggesting that Pilgrim Soul was yeah, doing here? Yeah. That is, um, you know, I didn't know I had a Pilgrim <coughs> Soul. Um, and what he's imagining is, that's so cool that I have a Pilgrim Soul. I must love him. Um, but most people think that's so corny, this phrase, Pilgrim Soul, um, if the poem is written to you. Um, this poem is written to someone whom Yeats wrote poetry to his whole life. And when I was um, an undergraduate, I kept thinking, why does she keep rejecting him? Here's this, like, you know, maybe the greatest poet of the 20th century, um, certainly an extremely great poet, wins the Nobel Prize. Everyone is talking about what an amazing poet he is. He is an amazing poem. He is good looking. Um, he does live a passionate life. And she's just like, <coughs> she respects him. Um, why doesn't she, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want to be loved by William Butler Yeats? And the answer is anyone loved by William Butler Yeats. Um, and um, because of this intensely adolescent quality, which is great, great, great in poetry, great, 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 great to read in poetry, not so great to be on the receiving end of. Um, so. But still, it is great in poetry. Um, I think you're right to love the poem. But would you want to be on the receiving end of it? I don't know if I could handle being on the receiving end and having it broadcast to the world. Yeah. That's the, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah, and, but part of the reason for the broadcast to the world is um, you may not know you have a pilgrim soul, but I'm telling the whole world, and they will all, <laughs> then they'll all know that about you. And I'm, you know, it's putting her on a pedestal. Um, which is a great way to express what love is, um, but not so great a way to, in the real world, be involved with someone. Um, you know, I think that for genuine adolescents, people who really are adolescents, <coughs> um, writing a poem like this might get someone interested in them. Um, but writing a poem like this to a person and saying, this is what you really are, and I, as a poet, am the one alone who knows what you really are, um, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's fair to cheapen... I don't mean to cheapen it. To cheapen Pilgrim Soul, because what do you think he means by that? I think maybe he means more than is on the surface. Okay, so what do you think he means? I mean, I don't take it to mean Pilgrim as in, like, the American Pilgrim. No, of course not. Of course Spartan not. and spars with buckles on his hat. No, no, no. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that it's not just loving someone because of something they have or something that they are at that moment. Yeah. But it's loving because of what they want. The person they're going to be. It's loving the person they're going to be, and it's also loving the fact that they're not never satisfied with themselves. Um, the great pilgrim in literature is Dante in the Divine Comedy, um, who is a pilgrim soul going through. Um, um, going through the depths of hell and to all glory um, to return to tell in words of hate and all the wondrous story how all things are transfigured except love. Um, and the other great pilgrims, of course, are the pilgrims in the Canterbury Tales. What it means to go on a pilgrimage and to be serious about that is to go, to be headed um, to some place holy and important and not to be satisfied with what you have now. And I certainly think he means that by it. Um, Jesse. Um, 
was probably wildly erroneous. But I being a total Shakespeare nut, almost read it as a, a Romeo and Juliet reference. Yes. Yeah. Of lips that holy pilgrims kiss. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's. I don't think that's wildly erroneous at all. Um, and hand to hand is holy Palmer's kiss. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Isabel, were you? No. Okay. Um, so, one man loved the pilgrim. Nick. By loving or by seeing her pilgrim soul, it's almost like he's saying that she should love him because she has a pilgrim soul. Yeah, and because he sees it. Yeah, that what, what her pilgrim soul is on a pilgrimage to is someone who sees that she has a pilgrim soul. How's that? More or less? Yeah. Less? No, no, that, that sounds all right. Okay. Um, so, one man, namely me, loved the pilgrim soul in you and loved the sorrows of your changing face. Um, and again, do you want to be loved for your sorrows? I think, yeah. Um. Yeah, so like that interpretation of Pilgrim Soul and being loved for your sorrows makes it seem like before when I read it, it was like, oh, that's nice. He like likes that like there's a part of her soul that's like becoming better all the time, which is nice. Then when you read it again, it's kind of like that's kind of intrusive. Yeah. To talk about somebody else's soul and be like, I love your face even when it's sad. Yeah. And like as it becomes more sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's making her into into a character, and I I like the way you put that. That is that at first it seemed nice, but then when you look at it from her her point of view, it's intrusive. Um, and I think that the thing about fictional worlds is you don't have to look at things from the point of view of fictional characters, um, unless you're asked to do so. Or the point of view of fictional characters that you look at things from is um, the point of view that the fiction asks you to notice, namely the sorrows of her face, rather than her, her consciousness that he's noticing the sorrows of her face. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of like when someone comes up to you and they're like, you look really tired. Yeah. And like, you don't really want to hear that. Right. It's like, yeah. they, they like, think they notice it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's the idea that you get in fiction that writers of fiction, in particular writers of poems, get, um, which is that the fictional character um, is somehow captured by a description, and because this character is not real, they only exist in a fictional world, um, you don't have to think about, well, what does it look like from their point of view? And the mistake that adolescents make is to think that if you present someone you're in love with with this um, really intense and dreamy and moody fictional version of themselves, um, they won't feel that you're, that you're essentially trying to coerce them into being that. But that is what you're doing. You know, just, just um, look, I may sometimes uh, sit listening to um, Beethoven quartets and and feeling really moved by them, and you may have noticed that I've that I've done that. But I also really like playing pinball, and I should be allowed to like playing pinball. But your version of me wants me just to be constantly and at every moment a pilgrim soul. You think that's deep, but in fact it's shallow. It's one dimensional. You just want me to be this poetic character, and 
Um, but that tells you something then about what poetic characters are. Um, and I think that's what Yeats is doing. So when he says, and women love the sorrows of your changing face, her face is changing there. And bending down beside the glowing bars, murmur a little sadly how love fled. So love there has to be him. That is to say that on some level, what we looked at in Shelley is how when love flees, love stays in the weak one. Here, love is fleeing, but it's the weak one who's fleeing. I loved you, but you rejected me. And so there was nothing for me to do but fall into um, terrible loneliness and into the dejection and the despondency of terrible loneliness. And so I fled. Um, no, I didn't want to be friends with you. That's not what I wanted. What I wanted to do was be alone. And so now you will think and murmur a little sadly how love, capital L, fled and paced upon the mountains overhead and hid his face amid a crowd of stars. And then again, what I asked you to notice at the end of class on Thursday was that we go from her changing face to his face. He becomes aware of his own face at that moment. Um, that somehow the sorrows of her changing face, in a sense, um, it's as though she doesn't deserve, if you, if you turn this into a poem of bitterness, which is too, it's too strong to do, um, but there's, if you bring out the, the very slight admixture of bitterness in the poem, the admixture of bitterness that makes it as powerful as it is, um, bring that out, just focus on that admixture of bitterness and what you would get something like is, I love the sorrows of your changing face, but you had no idea that that's what mattered about you. Um, I am the one who sees that sorrows on the face are what makes someone deep. And therefore, in this last stanza, it is I whose face is covered with sorrow um, and hidden on the mountains overhead amid the crowd of stars. Um, notice that it's the crowd of stars is quite different from the many that loved your moments of glad grace. Two different crowds. The crowds of normal people who liked you um, because you were basically an attractive and charismatic person. And then there's me. And I went and hid among the stars. Not quite a star myself, but a, <coughs> but a mythological character, capital L, love, hiding my face there, um, using the stars as camouflage so that people won't see the weeping in my face. And of course, it's, but if he said all this in the first person, I am the one who did all this, that would be wrong. Then it would just be ridiculous boasting. Um, but what he's saying is, no, love did that. And at that point, I'm somehow um, with love as love fears you and is sent into despondency by you and goes and hides among a crowd of stars. Yeah, okay. But if he's like camouflaging himself within the stars, then but he's telling her through the poem to like remember that he cried yeah. because of her. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like not. Yeah. Well, so what he's trying to do is. So that, that's exactly right. So what he's trying to do, what poets and poems frequently try to do, is to um, enter 
into a fictional world. Poets really want to be in that fictional world. Writers really want to be in that fictional world. So what he's saying is, this poem will be in a book. And that book, in many years, not right now when you're reading this poem, but in many years, this will be a completely fictional poem. I'll be dead, and you'll be old. And then I want you to try to enter into the fictional world of this poem in the same way that I'm entering into it and writing it. So again, just think of the strange fact, and then we're going to leave this topic, um, maybe for good, but certainly for a while. But the strange fact of what a fictional or poetic passion, what it is that you are saying in a poem which is different from what you would say in the real world, what the fictional psychology of passionate utterance within a poem is, and how different it is from real world psychology. And ask yourself, what in real world psychology would make someone prefer and go for solace and comfort and out of desperate despair into the world of fictional psychology? And I think the world of fictional psychology is best exemplified, at least in the poems that we've looked at, in this personification of love, who is absent when present, who is, who is with you when no one is with you, who represents how you feel when how you feel is that there's no one to say anything to. And yet here you're saying something. You're writing the poem. Um, it's not a real world thing, but it's as though you make yourself a person who would, who would have these emotions that correspond to real world emotions but are different from them in a fictional world and show how deep the real emotions are because of the necessity for the fictional emotions. That's putting it very fast, but it's also a summing up of what we've been talking about. Okay, on Wednesday we will begin the intimations of. Uh-huh. Is what? It was clicked in your pocket. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> yes.